Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 30th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. Sinn Féin is inviting people this evening to meet in the Carrickdale Hotel for a discussion on the future of Ireland. It's a future that the leadership expects will see Sinn Féin lead the governments on both sides of the border until such time, that is, that the country is reunited. The fourth so-called People's Assembly will ask people this evening to imagine what living in a united Ireland would be like, but there is some way to go if that is ever to become a reality. So what steps are necessary before even asking people to vote in a border poll? That will be very much part of the conversation too. Of course, the cold reality that power sharing in the North is suspended indefinitely must factor into this conversation as uh, the collapse of uh, the Good Friday Agreement has to be seen as a distinct possibility. Let's speak to the Sinn Féin President, Mary Lou MacDonald, who will be in the Carrickdale this evening. And a very good morning to you, Mary Lou MacDonald. Uh, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, What is the objective of holding these meetings at this stage? Well, uh, Michael, the objective is, as you set out, we want to hear from people, want to hear people's views, people's ideas, maybe field some people's questions on the issue of a changing Ireland, a new Ireland, a united Ireland. Um, As you know, and as people are, are well aware, Things have changed very significantly since the Good Friday Agreement was signed 25 years ago. Imagine mm. a quarter of a century. But things changed the, very significantly uh, February a year ago. Uh, and uh, with uh, the collapse of power sharing, is this conversation now not premature? No, it is uh, timely. Uh, as I say, we've had tw- we're 25 years on now from uh, the Good Friday Agreement, Steve. Demographics on the island have changed. Politics in the north has transformed. Um, A a state that was designed more than 100 years ago to have a perpetual inbuilt unionist majority no longer has that majority. So the issue of change and how we manage it is now imminent. It's a, a question for now, not sometime down the line. And we think it's really, really important that we begin the conversations, the dialogues, the engagement, and, of course, the preparation 
for uh, change uh, in the country but politi- over the next decade and beyond. Politics in the North, at best, is in a vacuum, is it not? Well, look, um, people will know we had, since Brexit, um, a, a whole series of difficulties that needed to be navigated. The first was to secure mechanisms to protect the island, to protect the Good Friday Agreement, the All-Ireland economy, uh, and so on. And we, we managed to do that. Uh, unionism kicked back at that. Ironically, those who argued most strenuously for Brexit now cried the saltiest tears about the, the consequences of Brexit, but be that as it may, um, you, are, you are right to say, and people know that the DUP uh, is continuing a boycott of the executive. That can't go on forever. It can't go on indefinitely. I, at this stage, am extremely anxious that people get back around the executive table, that political people get back to work, and that Michelle O'Neill takes up the, the mantle of uh, First Minister for All and presses ahead with progress and, and leadership. We've been hearing that. Com- on, we've been hearing relying on the DUP, obviously, to do the reasonable and rational thing to allow that to happen. But, but let me say this, notwithstanding all of those political manoeuvrings, uh, the fact still remains that Ireland has changed, Ireland is changing. We will face referendums on the constitutional question, I believe, within this decade. I believe we can win those referendums and do it well. I believe that we are only scratching at the surface of the potential of this incredible island. And I believe unity offers economic uh, prospects, social prospects, and a win for everybody, irrespective of your political stripe, irrespective of class, creed or colour. And I want us to grasp that opportunity with both hands. What's the basis for believing that, given that people in the North are under British rule today? Well, um, the the basis for it is, uh, if if you look at any metric, let's look at the issue, for, for example, of public services. Let's look at the issue of the health service, which, Michael, is the first question, certainly in my experience, that's raised by people when you start a real serious discussion about Irish uh, unity. Uh, the truth is that we will only solve, in my view, the, the big questions about healthcare provision, access to quality healthcare mm. on a 32 county all basis. Of the, all, all of the significant decisions, whether it's to do with healthcare, abortion, same sex, uh, or uh, to do with organ donation, uh, or, or whatever the case may be, all, all of these decisions are being made by the British government because, as I say, uh, the people of Northern Ireland are under British rule. What's the basis for thinking that uh, well, we could move to from that to a United Ireland? The, the piece that would, because the Good Friday Agreement makes provision for it. it, it provides, as you know, for the Assembly, for the Executive, for North-South bodies, for East-West mm. bodies. Right at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement is an acknowledgement of the right of Irish people to self-determination and the mechanism by means of mm. referendums to achieve that. I mean, the British uh, involvement in Irish affairs is a function of partition. I lament that. I think it's most unhelpful. I believe it holds us back economically, socially and, and in every way. And um, that's uh, currently we've two jurisdictions on the island, but I, I'm outlining to you our strong ambition and my strong belief that we are in the coming years, mm. we will be faced with the opportunity to remedy that situation peacefully, democratically. And I want it done in an orderly fashion. And that's why planning is so important at the Mm. level of government and why these types of conversations 
such as we'll have in the Carrickdale Hotel tonight are so valuable. Okay. The political class don't hold all of the wisdom on these issues. Far from it. And it's very important that we hear, as I was saying, from people on issues of their expectations for health. I want us to have a, a national, an Irish national health service on the issue of jobs, investment, community and rural uh, development, all of these things education, all of these things now will be on the table. And, and many people do and that, and that has been the conversation of that, that has been the conversation of the last 25 years, 25 years of peace which followed 40 years of war which led to the most fundamentally important part of the Good Friday Agreement which was power sharing and a, ro- a road map to reunification but what we have is British rule today we're reaching the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement uh, and instead of celebrating the Good Friday Agreement we could end up burying the Good Friday Agreement and the argument and the argument could be and just just yeah. let me put one last point yeah. to you the argument could be made that uh, the IRA lost the war could it not well, I think you're you're attempting now to be provocative and to engage in extensive revisionism, and I'm not going down that rabbit hole with you. Well, here far we are, British rule today. Far, That's what it was about. Far from far from uh, burying the Good Friday Agreement, we will mark 25 years of transformation beyond the wildest dreams and expectations of generations that preceded. You cited 40 years uh, of war that preceded Good Friday. You could cite centuries of conflict and hardship we could go how far back do we go the fact is that we have the the generation the good friday agreement generation achieved something extraordinary and we have an obligation a duty and a responsibility now to take that bat on and to build on it and of course we need to get power sharing back up and running that goes without saying of course it's absolutely disgraceful that the dup forced this limbo and hold people to hostage in this way The the agreement has now been struck between the British government and the European Commission as regards the protections for the island of Ireland. That that, that ship has now sailed. So it's now a question for the DUP to make clear that they will come back around the table of the executive with the rest of us. And by the way, Michael, at the core of this is the reality that we can simultaneously work together constructively day in, day out, dealing um, with the everyday needs of people in the north, notwithstanding the budgetary stress and the fact that, that the British still hold the purse strings. That's the truth of it. We can do that whilst at the same time talking, planning, preparing for the big opportunity, the, the once in, a, in several generations opportunity that we will have to finish our democratic journey, to complete our peace process, and most importantly, Together, wherever we came from in the past, whatever happened in the past, mm. uh, leave that to one side. We can collectively build a future together. And I, for one, am filled with optimism, filled with determination and filled, frankly, with excitement at that process. What about uh, success, achievement? Because Sinn Féin's failure to deliver is quite staggering, isn't it, given the party's popularity in the polls, not just in the opinion polls, but at uh, elections. Uh, and right now, Michelle O'Neill should be First Minister in uh, Stormont, uh, but the DUP won't allow her, where that has resulted uh, in British uh, rule. It's expected that after the next general election here, Sinn Féin will be the biggest party, but quite possibly will be put in, in, into opposition again 
by an alliance of opposing parties. Uh, and uh, indeed, uh, you look at the main issue this week uh, of the eviction ban, uh, you would have thought uh, that uh, Sinn Féin held uh, the higher moral ground, but lost the argument, lost the vote, uh, and indeed the opinion polls of public opinion reflect that the government probably has this right. Well, it's a good thing, Michael, that you're the journalist and I'm the political activist because, my God, if you were to take a a fatalistic, defeatist view like that, women would still be tied to the kitchen sinks and they'd still be sending our our kids up chimneys to clean them. I mean, the reality is that to affect change, uh, you have to work for it. And and we know that. I mean, since the the 2020 election, and bear in mind, after that election, all of the government said, Housing is the issue. How we get it, we hear you. They don't get it. They haven't heard. And this uh, week was the most stark uh, evidence of that fact. They won the votes. You're right. Uh, they got various uh, independents, so-called, of different hues to uh, to buy into their argument disgracefully, simply to avoid an election. I think I'm not sure. Um, but y- you claim that they won the argument. They they didn't win any argument. The truth is, come the weekend. You will have 3,000 families whose uh, eviction notices now come into play. 3,000 households terrified, most of them um, wondering where, where on earth do we go now. 17 councils across the state have no emergency accommodation. Most of those families, what will happen is they will end up maybe moving back in with parents, grandparents, families split up. Uh, moving in with friends, moving into overcrowded situations. So they won't necessarily feature on the homeless figures because, as your listeners know, the homeless figure is only those in emergency accommodation. The truth of homelessness is much Mm. bigger across society. So you may say, you've put it to me that they've won the argument. They've won no argument. They've behaved disgracefully, I would say despicably. I do not understand and I do not accept that any government worthy of the name with their eyes wide open makes a decision that they know will have the effect of putting thousands of families and thousands more into this situation. They have failed in housing. Mm. This is a catastrophic uh, failure. Uh, and, and 46% of people that. agree with you, according to that uh, Business Post poll last Sunday, but that's less than half. And more than that, uh, agree with the government or don't know. Well, look, the, the, you're, you're citing their polling statistics and, and public opinion, I think, will form and reform on these issues. I have to say, I haven't, in my experience, and I'm out and about, I'm, I'm meeting people all the time, I haven't met anybody who thinks that the lifting of, of the eviction ban at this time and in this way was a good idea. By the way, for the purposes of clarity, I, I'm well aware the ban couldn't go on forever. We weren't looking for forever. And by the way, also, it's important to state the eviction ban is what's called a no-fault eviction ban. So this isn't to give cover to people who couldn't be bothered paying their rent or who behave in a completely antisocial manner. They were never covered or protected by the ban. Who was protected were people who were paying uh, tenants, raising their families, doing their best, and who now are looking into this situation. I'm dealing with cases directly in my own neighbourhood. And I have to tell you, 
it's heartbreaking. Okay. Utterly, utterly a heartbreaking scenario. So if you're going to characterise that as a win for the government, I have to tell you as a political leader, those are not the types of wins that I would ever be looking for. Mm, all right. Well, I'm sure there'll be a very good attendance in the Carrickdale Hotel this evening uh, for the Sinn Féin People's Assembly. I'm sure many people will be looking forward to meet I with you. So. Okay. And thank you indeed for taking Thanks, the time Michael. to Thanks be with so us. Much. much appreciated. The That's the Sinn Féin President, Mary Lou Macdonald. Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, let's ask you that question. Uh, did uh, the government win the argument or did the opposition win the argument? Nobody, government included, will argue with what Mary Lou MacDonald said there a moment ago about people becoming homeless because uh, the eviction ban is to be lifted from Saturday of uh, this week. Indeed, from Saturday, people will start to leave their homes, uh, forced to leave their homes and uh, more people will add to that situation over the coming weeks and indeed over the coming months that will run into many hundreds of people, indeed probably many thousands of people. How many people will become homeless is the question. The government's argument is that if you don't lift the ban now, uh, you're going to see even more people become homeless in January of next year or February of next year because the proposal was uh, to keep the ban in place until the end of January next year. They say, look, probably thousands will become homeless now, but there'll be even more than that next February, uh, which is 10 months away. The opposition's argument is that this is just cruel and that you could do something in those 10 months to stop people from ending up in that situation. Uh, So who has won the argument? The argument is over. The evictions start from Saturday, but uh, you're welcome to have your say as always. Our telephone number is 0419832000. That's 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp if you'd like to share your thoughts on this with us. 0861800658. And we really would like to hear from you uh, because that opinion poll, I think, threw a spanner in the works and it gave uh, the distinct impression that there was a lot of support for government when I think up to the publication of that poll uh, the feeling was otherwise. If you want to have your say, text or WhatsApp 086 1800 658 or email michael at lmfm.ie 50,000 new tenancies were created in the last year alone according to the RTB and we anticipate a similar number this year. That is the solution. More social housing, more new tenancies of different forms. That is the answer to the question where will they go? And that will be the answer for the vast majority of people affected by the lifting of the temporary winter eviction ban. Count Corla, our mission as a government is to implement genuine solutions, more and better housing for all. Driving us is the exact same passion and indignation that drives our opponents. The difference is we will be honest about the solutions, clear about the constraints, realistic about the timelines and the unintended consequences of any actions that are taken. But this is a crisis that we will overcome. We are making progress and over the next two years, we will build on it. Right, that's uh, Taoiseach Leo Bradker speaking in uh, the debate on uh, the confidence motion in the government yesterday. Jerry, thank you for getting in touch. He says, there is no doubt in his mind that Sinn Féin in government will sacrifice everything on the altar of a united Ireland. And do they not think that loyalists will have the mindset that the IRA had for years and years, they will have to be dragged kicking and screaming into a United Ireland, which I believe 
they'll never accept. I fear that the next generation in Ireland will have to live through another era of the Troubles. Let's hope that's not the case, Jerry. but it's a valid point, I would imagine. John Navin was in touch with us yesterday about uh, the comments criticising Leo Radker, the Taoiseach and uh, the government. And he, he said he heard Peter Fitzpatrick say that he wouldn't be voting with the government, which he didn't. John says, only for Fine Gael. Uh, people would never have heard of Peter Fitzpatrick. He was elected because of Fine Gael. Eaten bread is soon forgotten, John says. And on the issue of homelessness, John says, it's a worldwide problem. There are 3,000 people and more than that sleeping on the streets in London, over 69,000 people sleeping in tents in Los Angeles. So the problem is not just an Irish one. No one is going to solve it. And anyone who says otherwise, John says is a liar. So how any member of government could look anybody in the eye and say that your housing policies are working is beyond me. This government doesn't deserve the confidence of the doll because it doesn't serve the needs of the people. The message you have sent to a generation that has lost so many years to the crisis that you have created is this, to wait. Nero fiddles while Rome burns. The Land Development Agency report published yesterday asks people to wait again for the possibility that the government might build, but not now, at some point in the future. What planet are you living on? And on it goes. The delusion of government on full and glorious display again here today. Sinn Féin's Mary Lou Macdonald once again there. Now, the original motion was a motion of no confidence from the Labour Party, a motion of no confidence in the government, which uh, the government countered with a motion of confidence. This catastrophic failure in housing delivery lies at the fault of government, and it's a failure of ideology, not of the economy, because we are running a 5.3 billion budget surplus. 5.3 billion, highest in Europe. You've scoffed at Labour's ambition, the scale of our ambition, to deliver a million homes over 10 years. That includes 50,000 new builds a year. That's an achievable ambition. And it's the scale that we need. You've acknowledged yourself, Taoiseach, the immense shortfall in housing currently. In previous years, this country has delivered 60,000 new builds a year. It's perfectly achievable if the will is there. And Minister Donoghue, Minister Donoghue rightly points, Minister Donoghue rightly points us rightly points us to the achievements of the state, the achievements of the state in addressing the COVID pandemic. It's that scale of ambition we need now on the housing catastrophe. 50,000 new bills, 50,000 refurbishments and retrofits a year. That's the scale of ambition we, we need. You may laugh, you may scoff, but it's based on your own figures. And that's the leader of uh, the Labour Party. Indeed, there was much scoffing uh, throughout uh, this debate at Ivana Backage's uh, proposal or intention or ambition to build a million houses in this country over the next 10 years. The antics of this government, which are grubby little side deals with the cheap dates in the so-called independent ranks, will live, quite frankly, in infamy. Transparency has been absolutely sacrificed on the altar of those grubby little side hustles. And the sight of this government's first subs, limbering up, hoping to catch the eye of the Taoiseach and Tarnashda, has been nothing short of pathetic. It's decision time now for those independents. 
This is a binary choice. It's not like last week's motion, which was amendable. It's a black and white choice. Yes or no? Are you with the people who elected you to work on behalf of the public good and the common interest, or are you fully paid up members of this Conservative coalition's second term? Now, if the road that the independents have been promised or the community centre they've been promised in their village is more important than the fate of children who may spend the school holidays looking aimlessly for new homes, then it really is time that those on the independent benches in this House took a damn good look at themselves and examined their own consciousness. Uh, Taoiseach, your Conservative coalition is now becoming a coalition of chaos, beholden to a ragtag bunch of independence for survival, and we have no confidence in you. Local Labour TD Jed Nash, and whatever the reason was for the way the independents voted, many of them voted with the government which won. The vote by a margin of 18. There was much criticism, indeed much mudslinging, coming from both sides at each other yesterday. The desire to house our people so that our children and their children ahead of them can raise a family safely and securely and affordably in this country. That instinct belongs to everyone on any side. Do you think that we do not want the same? Disagree. And what I say, Pierce, what I say, Pierce, is I see slogans and the politicisation of Anna, what you said. And I'll give you one example of if I could give you if I could give you one example of that. Because yes, we're absolutely fixated and determined in trying to prevent homelessness. But for not a single member of the opposition this morning, for not a single member of the opposition. To refer to something that was agreed last week that's fundamental, significant, not conservative, but progressive, which was the decision to put in a safety net so that we help and try and prevent that. And that's Eamon Ryan, the leader of uh, the Green Party, uh, who found it difficult, as you could hear there, uh, to uh, get his points across at times. Uh, He was not uh, the only member of Cabinet who found himself in that situation. You probably probably objected to more homes than any other member at all, Aaron. Um, So you probably have. You probably objected to more. I've never objected. Deputy O'Reardon. Deputy O'Reardon. Deputy O'Reardon. Deputy O'Reardon, please. Step to the O'Reardon, please. Step to the O'Reardon, please. Deputy. You're not a mood shore anymore. You don't need to wag your finger at me there. Thanks. Don't wag your finger at me. Don't wag your finger at me. And stop objecting to homes in your constituency. Minister Harris. Minister Harris. Sadly, the time is running. Well, it's running up because you're actually allowing my time to take. There's an interchange rather than through the chair. Right. Uh, Minister Simon Harris uh, finding it uh, difficult to speak uninterrupted. Let's hear how another minister got on. This is Michael McGrath. Consistently, Ireland is an attractive place where people want to come to live and to work and to rear a family. And we never hear any acknowledgement of any of that uh, from any of you on that side of the house. Uh, We have an economy economy in this country that is attracting people to Ireland. All right, Uh, I think we got the point. Uh, An economy that's attractive uh, to people to come and live here if they can find somewhere to live. Uh, Obviously, the minister is struggling to get that point across above the heckling. Uh, And there was much heckling and interruptions during that debate. We'll hear more from that debate later in the programme if you stay with us. But if you'd like to make comment on this issue or indeed uh, uh, another issue, uh, uh, or if you'd like 
like to raise an issue with us, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number, 0419832000. If you want to ring us uh, and uh, talk to Maggie, uh, tell her what uh, you think, 0419832000. Text your message by text, SMS, or by WhatsApp, 086 658 or email michael at lmfm.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. Today is World Bipolar Day and in conjunction with that, the Mental Health Organisation AWARE is running a week-long campaign. The idea is to increase awareness and understanding of uh, bipolar disorder. Let's speak to Dr Susan Brannock, who's the Clinical Director with AWARE. Good morning to you, Susan. Thanks for joining us on the programme today. Uh, This is what used to be called manic depression, isn't it? That's right, yeah. So bipolar disorder, uh, you did used to be called manic depression, so it is a mood condition um, characterised by, I suppose, an extreme shift between two mood states, so a depressive state and a, um, as would have been called a mania or an elevated or a high mood. Mm. Okay, and I uh, wonder why uh, it's no longer called manic depression. Uh, depression is something that you can come out of. Uh, that's not necessarily the case with bipolar disorder, though, is it? I guess there, depression is something, as you say, that you can manage. Bipolar disorder can also be very well managed. So I suppose the maybe the change in the name is reflecting the complexity of the condition. So people might live with different types. Um, certainly the experience of a high or an elevated mood can be managed well in terms of whether that be medication or cognitive behavioural therapy. I suppose to really understand the kind of triggers that might happen for someone for their mood to go down. Or, for, or to go high. So I suppose in AWARE, what we have been doing through this week, which is, is really helpful to... to um, I'm losing you there. I'm, I think the, <laughs> the phone is oh, slipping on us. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. Is that any better? Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah apologies. Um, so what I was saying, I suppose the key part of living well with bipolar disorder is understanding it and mm. learning the skills and the tools to manage it. So in AWARE, we're kind of promoting that through... Um, our engagement with World Bipolar Day today, so through a week-long, um, a week-long sort of information giving around the symptoms, how it is to live with it, and I suppose for people who might be supporting a loved one with it as well. So in our, our Living Well with Bipolar groups, there are eight-week programs where people can kind of come along, meet people who also are living with the condition of bipolar disorder, and really learn skills and, and techniques to manage mood and to, to live well with it. Okay. Uh, and uh, does that mean somehow reaching a happy medium? Uh, and without uh, support, is it a case that uh, people are in this state of high, as high as a, a kite, delighted with life and uh, full of energy uh, and if they're not feeling that way they're as low as low can be? Well I guess uh, bipolar disorder is an episodic condition so people may move between those move states maybe somewhat frequently so maybe you might have one high in a year or you might have a kind of a, a faster movement between them in between months so but it's people can live very well between those extremes of mood so there's a really good evidence base for support with depression whether that as I said be medication or therapy so that's the same in bipolar as if you just if you had kind of depression on its own um, there's a lot of myths maybe about about a high or an elevated mood as well so certainly in bipolar it's not about being um, really happy or having loads of energy whether energy may be a part of that but it also can be an experience of agitation um, racing thoughts difficulty sleeping 
So again, I suppose what we know from the evidence base is that more information and education about the condition can really support people to sort of reduce the kind the number of episodes that they have might have between those two those two poles. So again, I suppose that's something that AWARE offers in terms of those groups and also support groups as well. So to be able to talk to people with similar experiences and to learn from each other in terms of what's helpful and what's not helpful. It's always helpful conversations to have to understand yourself a bit more, I suppose, as, as we say, so we can, so people can continue to, to live well and manage, manage the condition. Okay, and those uh, two poles that come with bipolar disease, uh, mm. those two moods, uh, are, are they confusing for people who experience them? Uh, they can be confusing. I suppose maybe the the main thing that people will often say is the unpredictability of it. So people can be doing all, all of the right things, managing stress, kind of sleep okay, and they may still have an episode. So that can happen. But we also know that stressful episodes can can impact on that mood change but I suppose it can be it can be difficult and uh, unpredictable so I suppose it can impact on someone's I suppose self-esteem and worldview as well so certainly shame and stigma is something that comes up a lot in bipolar um, and I suppose that's again the, the point of World Bipolar Day and mm. certainly the, the campaigning work that we're doing in AWARE is to try to, to kind of educate both kind of support people who might be living with the condition but also dispelling some of the myths around it as well so it's a very serious condition but mm. also there is a lot of hope with it too so people can live well with it um, it's not a case of just being in one of the two moods it's certainly a much kind of fuller and richer life than that and people will, as a Yep. I'm sorry, what causes the mood swings? Is it a chemical reaction in the brain or what is it? Well, it's a, it, can be, it can be many things. So there's many theories about what might cause it. Certainly our brains are involved in, in everything anyway because we're human, so there may well be a chemical change. Oftentimes a very stressful uh, event, so maybe a life transition or a stress more generally may trigger an episode and then that can maybe spiral down for people or maybe spiral up for people. It's complex. There's not one single cause as to mood change or even a single cause as to why someone might develop bipolar. It's certainly different for different people. I suppose the main thing that we would say it's more about understanding how it is to live with it now and mm. how to manage the symptoms as opposed to looking for that 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 one cause. People are quite complex. It's, it's always going to be quite broad, you know, as to the, the, contribute, the contributions to a mood, a mood change. And I would say it's not just about kind of slight mood changes. These are real, real shifts in mood for people. So the, the, for a depression, for instance, can be a very significant low period. And a mania might be very high where the, where the person is experiencing a lot of um, distress and, and certainly sometimes can people, people can have both which can be hard to understand as well so mm. a low mood with, with some elements of, of agitation or restlessness mm. Can it lead uh, to people becoming delusional or even hallucinating? It can do for some people. As I said, people's experiences can be can be really different. Certainly, in uh, either mood mood kind of pole, it can do so. Um, and that's something again where I suppose support and education are really key. So knowing the triggers that are leading into one of those more extreme states. Um, in our living well with bipolar group, in aware what what a key part of that group is developing a bit of a plan around kind of understanding and managing triggers and having a bit of a, a plan, as I said, then to when if things get to an extreme point, the support 
plan that's in place for that. And another really good part of the programme that we offer is in, so it's an eight-week programme, mm-hmm. and one of the weeks is people bring along, whether that be a partner or a friend or a family member, so they can also get a bit more of an understanding of the person's experience in that context, as well as more general information about bipolar. So that can be really helpful for people. So it's it's one strand of a of a kind of a, a management plan. So if your you know your partner or a family member might say, oh, you know, noticing kind of maybe slight changes, just wondering how you're doing. So they can be helpful as an external perspective as well. Okay, is it is a disorder that can go unnoticed or is it a a disorder that people can find difficult to identify in themselves? Yeah, definitely. Um, And certainly we know that it can take maybe up to nine, ten years for diagnosis on average. So it's a tricky tricky condition to diagnose. Um, I I suppose what I would say maybe if someone was listening to this and wondering do they have it, it, it's maybe a helpful starting point is to remember, as I said, that it's episodic. So it's changes in mood. You know, so it's not always, so it's it's kind of noticing those kind of shifts between a low or a high. So if someone was wondering about that, the first protocol I would be saying is to try to keep a bit of a diary of where someone's mood is changing um, and kind of noticing patterns in there if you can. And then, as we would always say in a way, maybe to talk to your GP or if you're already linked into mental health services to connect in there. Um, I suppose that it, it, it can be tricky in a sense that so there's different types of bipolar. And again, going back to your first question about why it sort of evolves from manic depression, because it's mm. a complex condition that has different different types within the condition. Um, so people may experience what we would describe as a hypomania, which is, is maybe a less intense high. They may not always report that to a GP or mental health professional because they may not kind of... Um, may not see it as a problem. That's t- mm. typically what comes up. So it can be, a, as I said, a tricky condition to diagnose. But with the diagnosis, um, that can open up the uh, the right intervention plan, which can then support someone in the longer term. Okay. It's complicated, obviously. Um, mm. we, we've learned just a, a little bit this morning. I'm sure there's lots of people listening, though, who can identify with what you're saying, even though it's a very small proportion of the population, just 1-2% to of people in this mm. country who experience the disorder, but I'm sure they have many friends and family who are listening to us as well, if there are people who fall into this category and uh, they may think, well, what do you do about it? But as you say, there is help uh, mm. available from AWARE. You have uh, this eight-week programme, which is uh, includes a 90-minute session every week, and uh, people can avail of that by contacting AWARE. Yeah, absolutely. I would really recommend people to go onto our website. So for World Bipolar Day, we've got really interesting um, information. So people who are living with the condition, that could be really helpful to have a look at if you're wondering about it. And as you say, someone who's supporting a loved one, do have a look at our website. We also run a relatives and friends group. So that's specifically for people who are supporting a loved one to come together and talk through their experiences. So they're kind of virtual and in-person groups as well. So definitely have a look at our website and see if there's something that might be of offer to you there. And that's aware.ie. Aware.ie. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us today. That's uh, Dr. Susan Brannock, who's uh, the clinical director with Aware. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, I think everybody is very shocked uh, by uh, the bullying, uh, the physical abuse, uh, the psychological abuse, uh, the assaults, uh, the intimidation, the harassment, uh, the torture and rape, which seem uh, to have been commonplace in uh, the Defence Forces. Let's speak about uh, the review now and where it goes with uh, the statutory investigation that is expected. Nolan Blackwell, Chief Executive of uh, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, joins us on the line. A very good morning to you, Nolan, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. You've le- you, you, you've um, dealt with a lot of institutional abuse over many, many years. Um, have you ever seen anything like this? So this is really, it is out on its own, Michael, in many ways. And I think it's out on its own because uh, in, in two ways. One is that uh, this closed institution really did keep things very close to its own chest, had its own way of working and wasn't open or amenable to anybody else. So there was such capacity for abuse of power within that. I mean, an army by its nature has to be hierarchical. There have to be commands. People have to obey commands on the spot. But but. You don't need to disrespect people while giving commands. And it looks like uh, it looks from this report, which is very compact and it's only 100 pages. It's very clearly written. Uh, There's a lot of recommendations in it, but it is clear that they have found systematically throughout the system that people were abused and there was abuse of power. Not everybody, but enough to make it systematic and enough to know that some people even admit within the report that they knew it was going on, turned their eyes away in case it also hit them. But the other thing I think that is really important is that this is not the first report we have of this. Now, Senator Tom Clonan, at the time doing his PhD, spoke about this 20 years ago. And there was another report 10 years ago by an American academic, and she found the same thing. So it has been there in kind of plain sight in some ways. And and therefore, that means that this report has an extra duty because if it is not taken up, we absolutely are letting ourselves down as a country and we're letting down the great people who serve us and who mind our security and who live themselves in abusive and unsafe workplaces, according to that report. And this behaviour continues to exist. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. The review also found that the Defence Forces is unable or unwilling to make the necessary changes. Yeah, so so you're right about it. So you mentioned the statutory inquiry at the start, and that is promised. These things, statutory inquiries, ha- happen from time to time. And uh, they always take time to set up. Everyone goes in with their lawyers and the rest of it. So it's only a partial remedy. It's what, it's what some survivors want and need, and it's necessary. But, but one of the things that struck me about it was that this report also recommends immediately that the current complaint system be scrapped and a new one set up. And that's, you know, when I, just just from my reading of that report, and of course they were trying to condense an awful lot, the, the complaint system that exists in, in the Defence Forces right now stems from the 1950s. And there was, in the 1950s, there was not much respect for people as employees. There were very few systems in place and life has moved on. I know a lot of workplaces still have abuse in them, a lot of sexual harassment in them, but at this level, at this close level, where people are being told, take precautions because you are at risk if you go away on a, on a trip, uh, keeping peace around the world, you are at risk of being sexually harassed, so you have to take precautions for that. We will not give you uh, rape kits because it might only tempt you to, uh, to disclose if sexual abuse happened. You know, so so, so, the, so there's a couple of things about this, that one is the statutory inquiry, good, but it can't be the only thing. For those who are there right now where abuse is continuing, there has to be an updated, modern complaints system because nobody, nobody, as far as you can see from this report, nobody trusts the, the current system. Nobody trusts that their complaint will be taken seriously or that they won't suffer vicious mm. re- reprisals and revenge if they try to pursue a complaint of abuse. It's ridiculous. Sir. I mean, yeah. it's hard to believe how widespread this problem is. Most women in the Defence Forces uh, have suffered sexual assault or sexual harassment uh, that is just very, very hard to fathom. Uh, and you mentioned yeah. Tom Clunan's report, uh, but assurances have been given uh, to the chiefs of staff over the years and uh, indeed to the defence ministers to 2002 that this doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. So there's an element yeah. of cover-up in that. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, or an, uh, an element of not... Invest, you know, you can get a report saying everything is fine, sir, um, but it hasn't been investigated. This report is also recommending, and the Thornishton, who's also the Minister for Defence, has promised that there will be um, a legally established external oversight group. Now, that's very unusual in the army because of its the closed nature, because uh, of the confidentiality of the way they operate. There's going to be a legally established external oversight group. There is also going to be a change in the law to make it easier to report abuse to the Gardaí mm. when it reaches the criminal level. Instead of All the military police. All of these police. things are essential. Uh, the military police uh, will be taken out of those uh, investigations and it will be uh, the Gardaí who will be charged with investigating uh, uh, allegations of that sort in future and that uh, I'm sure will be uh, a positive because it will be independent. Uh, I see that the current Chief of Staff, Lieutenant General Sean Clancy, 
said that he knew nothing about this. Uh, he hadn't heard mm-hmm. of sexual assaults or, or bullying uh, until uh, the independent review group was established and he heard about them for the first time after he took up his role uh, 18 months ago. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know if it's unfair um, to, to question that, but it's very hard to understand why the Chief of Staff didn't know. Yeah, but we have spoken before about other institutions, more open ones. Like, mm. for instance, the universities were assuring us five years ago that there was almost no sexual harassment in any university around the country. And, and they were able to say that because there were no complaints going up the system. Once somebody said, I don't buy that, that couldn't be the case, and I want you to interrogate it further. We are now finding that the, that the numbers are increasing like massively, but that is, to my mind, only a good thing because it is showing up that the complaint system that's there, that the processes for unearthing it are better now by a far shot than they were, I shouldn't be using the word shot in the context mm-hmm. of the army, but yeah. they're much, much better than they, they were before in our third level institutions which were very closed and very, very uh, resistant to anyone challenging them on those figures. So it is possible. So what this report is suggesting is a different way of approaching it recognising that it's there and trying to ensure that those who are harmed by it, and they are, that they have valid ways of getting their their complaints uh, heard and a remedy put in place without retribution. Now, that's going to be a huge job, and I don't envy the Chief of Staff and his senior people, because leadership has to come from the top. Mm. It also is going to need that continued government uh, um, insistence that it be fixed. I thought the Thornister came out very strongly two days ago, in, and apparently I think he'll be in the Doyle again today mm. answering more mm. questions on it. But that, he yeah. came out very strongly when the, the first of all I thought the, the independent group review was very strong, yeah. very clear. Women are barely tolerated was what Judge Bruno yeah. Hanlon who led it said in, in relation to this. So it's going to need government to continue to say, do you know what? These are our security forces. You are not an independent republic in the defence forces. We as a government need to be satisfied that these things are stopping and that they're stopping immediately. We as a people, because they're our security forces. And as things stand, uh, I have to say, I really wouldn't want my son to join the army and it'll be a very long time before I'd be happy for him to join the army based on what we've heard. And I most certainly wouldn't want my daughter to join the army, would you? No, no, that, that's the thing. I mean, it, it, apart from anything else, it's in the Defence Force's own interest to fix this because you are absolutely right. Uh, that people, anybody now looking at a career choice looking at that would say, why would I walk into it or why would I let my son or daughter or whoever into a situation where they are almost almost inevitably going to suffer abuse, uh, uh, particularly if they're a woman. So it's in their own interest as well, but it can be hard to shift systems. So the other part about that is that it is possible and with political will internally within the Defence Forces and externally from government and with the rest of us not tolerating it anymore either, uh, you know, in any way whatsoever, because everyone in this, the Defence Forces have family, they have friends, 
Ireland's, they have relatives outside of the security forces. They will all have to say, we don't, we don't want to hear that you're associated. Well, we do want to hear, but we don't want you to be associated with any of that. Going to take all that. And then it is going to take money and expertise built in to change the systems and to change the culture that allowed that to happen, that allowed people to turn a blind eye and that made people who were subjected to abuse just take it and get on with their jobs because they were devoted to what is a vocation, which is the security forces as they stand. Okay, well, I'm sure there's uh, some people listening to us uh, this morning, uh, which is always uh, the case when we talk about sexual assault, that understand uh, what it is like to be sexually harassed or sexually assaulted or raped for that matter uh, and uh, we should remind people that there's always help at hand 24 hours a day on the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre's helpline which is a free phone number 1-800-77-8888 that's 1-800-77-8888 Nolene, thank you as always for thank joining you, us this morning Nolene Blackwell, Chief Executive of the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. As uh, the terms, tourism season gets underway, uh, there's uh, been a lot of concern about what will happen uh, to 12,000 Ukrainian refugees who are being housed in hotels uh, and other guest houses and so on uh, because uh, the contracts with the government run out at the end of this month. On the other hand, there's been a, a lot of concern uh, as well uh, about what will happen in terms of tourism, if uh, the 12,000 refugees stay in the hotels and those hotels aren't available to tourists, uh, it seems uh, as though some refugees will be asked to move out, but maybe not as many as was feared up to recently. We are in weekly in, uh, engagement and contact with the Department of Children, etc. Um, and while I don't have the detailed figures to hand, as of today, my understanding from talking to them is that a very large majority of hotel contracts continue to be renewed. Um, Department of Children um, is... Um, is working on a rolling week-by-week basis um, as contracts expire. And my understanding from talking to them is that only a small minority of hotels are choosing not to renew. Um, so I don't have the precise figures, but my understanding is that it's, it's, it's a much higher proportion are remaining in the sector than, than might have been anticipated a month or two ago. But I, I can certainly ask uh, that department for detailed figures. And that's Keen Olunan, who's uh, the Assistant uh, Secretary General at uh, the Department of uh, Tourism, who was addressing uh, the Oireachtas Committee on Tourism yesterday. Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles is a member of uh, that committee. And good morning to you, Senator Castles. Thanks, as always, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. It seems as though there's no winners here because uh, it looks as though 1,200 refugees may be asked to move out of hotels and as a result of those who remain in the hotels the tourism trade could lose out to over a a billion euro this year yeah good morning michael i suppose that's why we had all of the representatives you've heard from the department there there was actually fault ireland were present yesterday the irish hotel federation uh tourism uh, federation so we had all of the main practitioners there yesterday uh to to listen to their concerns Uh, and we have been doing that regularly because as you said, it's a very important industry. It's worth around nine and a half billion to Ireland. It employs 250,000 people, 
so that's why we actually have very regular engagement with the industry uh, at this at this tourism committee. Uh, the, the the representatives from the department there outlined um, that it isn't this kind of tsunami uh, that maybe people had anticipated of 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 those who have hotel and accommodation uh, cancelling uh, the contracts. In fact, as he said, in the main they're all being they're all being renewed, um, and that that is good from the humanitarian point of view. Yeah. As you said, you then have a scenario of a challenge in terms of not just accommodation but the outward spend in regions because a lot of the hotel accommodation that has, is on contract would be from kind of two or three star hotels as well in rural areas where the, the hotels for the tourism season is very important and the spend in that local economy mm. um, of course is three times the amount of what the actual hotel spend is. Well, if you can't get uh, somewhere to stay, you exactly, don't you, you don't holiday exactly. in Ireland. If you don't holiday in Ireland, uh, not only do you not stay in uh, the hotel, but you don't go on a, a day trip, you don't eat out, uh, you don't go for a pint, you don't do any of these things that people will do. Exactly. I suppose in that, in that debate, it's important to remember as well that the actual, the international visitors to Ireland, which bring in, the majority of the money, because they would account for seven and a half billion of that nine and a half billion spend that I've spoken about. They that really that market is that it's actually not impacted because most of those bookings would take place before Christmas last autumn. It's it's that far in advance, and they would account for, as I said, seventy five percent of the hotel beds uh, taken up uh, by the by the the foreign tourists. So that that market, where my concern is, is actually on the domestic tourism market. And Irish people trying to make a booking at the last minute, and we saw a very high degree of, of price gouging happen last summer. Uh, and we had some very robust debates last uh, autumn in the wake of that. And prior to Christmas, and again in the spring, and again yesterday, you know, we've been making the point we don't want to see a repeat of that this summer. And whilst accommodation has been taken by some hotels for contracts for for those fleeing war. It is important to remember as well that a huge amount of new hotel beds and new hotels have been um, brought into the market as well. So in Dublin alone, which is probably the real problem area, there would be 22,500 uh, hotel beds. There's 3,500 new hotel beds coming on stream this year. And I just got a bit irked yesterday with the, with the Tourism Federation because they spoke about the extraction of beds uh, from, the, from the sector and that if you took... Uh, tractors out of a field or you took cranes out of a building site uh, by 30%, it would have an impact on supply and cost. And I said, well, that's, that's a fair enough point. But there's 3,500 new beds coming Yeah, but they're, they're losing over 10,000 beds. But there's 3,500 coming into Dublin, which is the real mm. pro- probably problematic area. If you were to look at the counties where it being impacted most, it's kind of Donegal, uh, mm. Kerry, Kerry, Clare. Course, yeah. In Dublin, mm. where the price gouging was, was exacerbated, mm. there's 3,500 new beds. This is an industry that prior to, to Christmas and in the spring were asking for an extension of the 9% VAT rate, which takes half a billion euro out of the exchequer if that, that's continued. And we listened to their concerns because they said it's important, and that 9% VAT rate was continued. Yesterday, the Tourism Federation came in and go, look, at just kind of we're saying to you, prices are probably going to go up this summer again. Uh, and we, but we don't, this was the crucial point, but we don't think it's going to have an impact on our industry. And I said, well, hang on, you mm. told us that the 9% VAT wasn't continued. It would have an impact on the industry. So on one hand, you're saying, government, don't put the VAT up because that's going to hurt our industry. Now you're saying you're putting your own prices up, but it won't hurt our industry. You can't have it both way, guys. You can't be coming in here telling two stories just when it suits you. And you're actually the guys 
that are actually hurting. And Fall to Ireland, in fairness to them, said, you know, to the, the other practitioners yeah. in the room, you're going to end up, you're going to end up hurting our, our reputation. It's abroad. a short-term view, isn't it? It, it is. And, and we listened to it last summer, and I, I suppose we were very concerned that we didn't want the industry to, to be hard. They had, reco- they had gone through a very harsh period. Energy costs had gone up, but energy support schemes have been put in place by government. Um, other costs have gone, gone up as well. So they made that case. But as, as Fault Ireland said, a very, uh, you know, and a minority, it has to be said, have the potential to really hurt our international reputation if, if international tourists can't get value for their money. And on top of that, domestic uh, people, d- domestic tourists who during COVID, you know, re-engaged with our, with our domestic tourism market as well. Okay. Uh, it's inevitable, though, uh, from what you're saying, they're going to put the prices up and that's the end of that, is it not? Well, no, I mean, they, they, they made the point. I just felt there was a threatening tone to the, to the conversation yesterday, kind of getting in and ahead of the game, saying mm. that if we're back in the autumn, the prices have gone up. Nearly don't blame us. We told you in advance. Yeah, but and if the demand is there, they'll put the prices up because they can and for no other reason. That seems clear and uh, there's nothing stopping them. No, um, and as they said themselves, they don't control the prices of their individual uh, um, hotel uh, partners. Um, but as I said, we have a situation where they were saying prior to this that the, the contributory factors to, to um, increases would be the government putting up VAT and lack of supply. The government didn't put up the VAT, they kept it at 9%, and there's 3,500 new hotel beds coming into the city of Dublin this summer. So clearly their arguments um, are, are, are not stacking up in respect. And we made it clear to them that they have a duty of care now to the consumer and to their own industry, to protect their own industry to not be making fools of themselves coming into a tourism industry or committee prior to Christmas, pleading and pleading, don't increase the VAT rate, and then at the same time coming back in and going, um, you know, well, we're, we're going to do it anyway. It, it really struck with a prodigal son uh, parable, and uh, I think they got a fair, they got a, that it, certainly for myself and other members, they got a fair warning uh, that that can't continue and that they can't have it both ways. But as I said, mm. it is a very important industry. And the ultimate aim here is to protect it, because if you've got a quarter of a million people employed, if you've got nine and a half billion of a spend, and then on top of that, and we see it in Meath and Loud, with Newgrange, with the Hill of Tara, with Trim Castle, with Brunabonia, the spend in towns like Drogheda and um, Navan and Trim and Old Castle um, is, is significant, because it was a time that people would only come down on the tour buses, get off, go to the various uh, sites and be shipped back into Dublin. Hmm. Uh, and that was detrimental to towns like Drogheda and, and Trim and Navan. But now we've seen, you know, new hotels in Drogheda, the D Hotel in, in Mead, the Knightsbrook Hotel, big hotels that can actually accommodate the tourists. And so they stay in our towns and the spend is there. And it's critical that we retain that spend uh, because, as I said, it's, it's so vital to our uh, to our local economy. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to talk to us uh, today. Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles is uh, a member of uh, the Rockers Committee on Tourism. Now, let me bring you some of uh, the comments uh, that have been coming to us. Uh, a WhatsApp message from somebody who says, anybody from outside of this country listening to our elected representatives acting like corner buys on a Saturday night uh, will find it to be disgusting. Carry on. Uh, uh, another WhatsApp message uh, from a listener who says, I'm bipolar. Uh, and it's not 
the big life things that cause the ups and downs, it's tiny things that would affect most people that causes my lows or mania, as the case may be. Thanks for sharing that with us. Uh, we'd uh, Kevin in touch asking about uh, water in the Green Hills area. It went off early yesterday morning, was supposed to be back on by four, didn't come on at all uh, for the whole area, uh, which still doesn't have water today. When I, I ring Ishka Water, all you get is an automated reply with wrong information. If I call the council, they say it's not their problem. Uh, it's Ishka Water. Uh, thanks, Kevin. Uh, we've got on to Irish Water or Ishka Water. We're waiting for a reply on that. I know that they're repairing or replacing the sewage pipes uh, in the area and there were planned outages, uh, but uh, we don't know why the water is still off today. But thanks uh, for asking. Uh, we've an email uh, come to us uh, from Martin. It says, Michael, the government has failed miserably in addressing the housing, homelessness and rental rip-off crises again as they did for the past three de- decades. The deliberate Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael policies to stop local authorities building social housing for those on low wages as they would have done in the 70s, 80s and 90s and to pass that responsibility onto the private sector has led to the dire place we now find ourselves in. Rebuilding Ireland and the present housing for all policies have failed miserably. Anyone who thinks otherwise is seriously deluded and out of touch with reality. They claimed over 20 years ago that we needed 50,000 houses built yearly based on demographics. So the figures they're throwing around now are totally bogus. We need major change in government from the top to the bottom through all of the departments and authorities. It's as if all intelligence and empathy has gone out of the window. Current policies and systems are clearly unfit for purpose. Many thanks, uh, Martin, for taking the time to share your thoughts so articulately with us. Sheila on the phone to us says they should build prefabs like they would have done in the 50s for the homeless and uh, then when they get back on uh, their feet, they can pay for them. Pat in at Boy says hospital visiting hours are not sufficient. He has to travel 30 miles to visit the hospital. It seems unfair that uh, they're set from 6 to 7 p.m. It doesn't really give people a lot of time to spend with loved ones. Uh, we'd Dermot in touch with us as well, who felt it was very unfair of the earlier caller to criticise Peter Fitzpatrick's decision to leave Fine Gael. Peter left because he wouldn't vote in favour of abortion. P- Peter did what he believed in regarding the eviction vote. Uh, he, he did what he believed in when it came to the eviction vote and he should be commended for that. He, he wasn't bought over like some of them, says Dermot. Well, thank you, Dermot, for sharing that with us too. Michael Reed on LMFM. A review of uh, the termination of Pregnancy Act, which uh, allows uh, for abortion services in this country, has been examining if uh, the services are being delivered as intended or if uh, they could be improved. Indeed, uh, this uh, review has been given to the Minister for Health uh, last month and the Irish Times reported yesterday that uh, the report which is being compiled by Barrister Marie O'Shea uh, is recommending a loosening 
of the existing rules. Let's uh, talk a little bit more about this now. We're joined by Faye White, who's uh, the Women's Health Officer with the National Women's Council of Ireland. And a very good morning to you, Faye, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme. I take it this is what is expected, uh, and indeed it is what the Women's Council has been hoping, uh, that uh, the abortion services in this country would be made more accessible, in other words. Good morning, Michael. Thanks very much for having me on. Um, Yes, as you say, uh, this review has been ongoing for a while now. And, you know, it's been five years now since repeal. And while we have abortion for services, and this is really welcome for for women in Ireland, we know that there are still a lot of barriers that mean that women are still travelling abroad for abortion. And where they can access services within Ireland, they often find the experience quite distressing um, and at times infantilizing in terms of the, the restrictions and the barriers that exist to abortion services. So uh, the, the review that's been ongoing is a really important and unique opportunity to address these barriers. A lot of work has gone into it by uh, the independent chair and there's a, a huge evidence base here uh, from abortion providers, um, from women themselves, uh, and, you know, I think that's that's really important to highlight is that this is an opportunity to not only just listen to women's experiences, but to act on them. And I think that that's something that uh, really uh, people resonated with people during repeal was hearing women's experiences and saying, you know, this should be about bodily autonomy and women's right to choose for themselves. And what does that mean? Does that mean unrestricted access to abortion, to remove uh, the restriction after 12 weeks gestation and to remove the three-day waiting period? So in terms of the three-day waiting period, that's absolutely something that the National Women's Council have been recommended that is removed. Uh, That was uh, put into the the law with no evidence basis. There is no medical requirement for a three-day wait and one of the strands of the review has been research with service users, which was conducted by Trinity College Dublin. And the women who accessed abortion services said that they found that that three-day wait was um, infantilizing and insulting. And, um, you know, women should be trusted to be able to make decisions about their health for themselves. Um, and there's no other ac- area of healthcare where there is a legally required three-day wait for anybody to access the service. That review did recommend a second consultation, but without that obligatory three days in between. Yes, absolutely. And some people may want uh, an additional consultation. That's a decision to be made between them and their doctor. But there's absolutely no evidence that says that this should be something that is legally required for every person to access the service. And it is something that the World Health Organization has recommended against in their guidelines for abortion care. So the National Women's Council, along with the abortion working group, which we chair, have recommended that this three-day wait is removed within this um, within this review and really this is the only opportunity we have uh, to address that. Uh, you also mentioned there the 12-week limit. So currently uh, there's unrestricted abortion access up to 12 weeks and then it's available in the circumstances of a risk to the life or the health of the mother or in the uh, fatal fetal anomaly. And um, Again, that 12-week limit is causing a lot of stress for women. and um, There are lots of groups of women who face additional barriers accessing GP services um, for disabled women, uh, women who have childcare responsibilities, 
uh, women in rural areas, you know, there's additional barriers to accessing uh, the abortion care within their, their GP. And like I say, that's taking place then within that context of a three-day waiting period. So there's a huge time pressure there on women. Mm. And what we've heard is that that's causing a lot of stress, anxiety, and it means that a lot of women are pushed outside of that 12-week limit. You've called on Stephen Donnelly to publish this report. Uh, Do you know why the Minister hasn't up to now? He's had it for over a month, it would seem. Yes, and this is, um, you know, there's been several delays to this process at this stage. It was initially due to be presented to the Minister at the end of 2022, um, and then the beginning of February, and then it was finally presented to the Minister at the end of February. So what we're really hoping is that there is a wealth of uh, evidence presented in this report. We know, as I say, a lot of work has gone into it. Mm. There's the public consultation uh, around this time last year, um, the review with service, the, the research with service users, and the research with service providers. Um, and I know that there was a piece there on conscientious objection as well, which mm. was included within the report. So. At this stage, we're very concerned within the National Women's Council that there isn't transparency on what the next steps will be. Uh, well, um, there may lay the problem, because uh, reading the Irish Times, it, it seems quite possible, at least, that if and when the Minister gets around to publishing this report, it may lead to the establishment of an Oireachtas Committee to examine the findings of the report, and then they'd make their recommendations on it. Well, what we're calling for is that the report really should go into the health committee. Um, this uh, this review needs a cross-party um, cooperation, and we've seen that within the health committee. They've been really engaged on this issue, and the, the National Women's Council did present on abortion access to the health committee uh, this time last year, along with the Irish Family Planning Association. So this is something that the, there is a, an existing committee there who have knowledge of this, who've been engaged with the process. Um, and really, if it's to go into a special committee, you're talking about further delays to this process. And like you said yourself, we've already had delays with the report being presented to the minister and now being published publicly. So there's no reason why it shouldn't go into a, you know, an existing committee who can then examine the report and bring in key expert witnesses, such as those who, who, who undertook the research um, to present the findings to them and then they can look at the changes that need to be made. Okay. Um, but really it's about transparency and this is a really unique, unique opportunity to do that. And it's very important that the Minister does publish the, the full report. Um, I, I know that there was talk there within that article of publishing a me- memo to Cabinet, but publicly we need to be able to see um, the independent chair's full recommendations, the full findings of the report um, and have that transparency available. Okay, Faye, I have to leave it there. Thank you, though, for joining us on the programme this morning. Faye White, Women's Health Officer with the National Women's Council of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. A WhatsApp message from Elaine who says, I want to agree with uh, the earlier caller who suffers with uh, bipolar. Uh, it is the small things that cause anguish. And especially when a lot of small things come together, it's not the boulder on my shoulder, but the pebble in my shoe. I can cope really well with the big things. Uh, Thank you indeed, uh, Elaine, for your message. Uh, Margaret, thanks for your text as well. She says governments past and present are to blame for the housing crisis. Uh, They handed over the building of houses to private developers when the job should have been left with uh, the councils. By doing away with bed sits years ago, they started the homeless situation as there was nothing put in place to replace them. 
Uh, yet some developers were looking to build high-rise units with single rooms, not much bigger than a prison cell, where you would eat, sleep, shower and so on. If they were built they would end up just being expensive bedsits, I'll bet, she says. Thank you, Margaret, uh, for that. Uh, we'll hear more of uh, that debate now on uh, the housing crisis as well. Uh, it's obviously the debate on the confidence in government uh, that uh, took place in the Dáil yesterday, but it, it centres uh, around uh, the evictions. The Green Party deserve a special mention here because they have justified their support for lifting the eviction ban by stating that tenants will soon have a first right of refusal to buy their home when the landlord sells it. Any such scheme would require legislation, something the Green Party leader seemed confused about after it had been announced. We have no idea when that legislation is likely to be published. And even if the legislation did exist, most tenants would not have a hope of being able to afford their rental homes. Because in this case, the Green Party didn't seem to know. Just for your information, house prices are at record highs. The decision of the Green Party is a Marie Antoinette moment. Let them eat cake is not the solution when the masses can't even afford bread. Holly Kearns, the leader of the Social Democrats there. And to Ministers O'Brien, Joe and Dara. Joe, we have a neighbour. Joe and I live in the same town. We have a neighbour, she's a widow. She has four children. She's out on the 15th of May. Where's she going, Joe? Used to work in the homeless services, you know how bad it is. Where's she going? Where's she going? She going into emergency accommodation and her kids on the bus every morning, coming from town, out to Scaries. Is that what she's supposed to do? She going into a hostel? Where's she going, Joe? She's your neighbour. She's my neighbour. Dara, she's one of your constituents. Where is she going? Where is she going to go? A widow and four children. You have no answers. And unless you have an answer for that woman, then you must vote no confidence in this government and you must support the Sinn Féin legislation to extend the only bloody safety net that exists for these people. Sinn Féin's Louise O'Reilly putting it up to Joe O'Brien and uh, Dara O'Brien. What it is about is delivery and it is about supply. And I say to Deputy O'Reilly, who came in here today and again put forward uh, her views, which uh, obviously she's per- perfectly entitled to. But let's see what Sinn Féin are doing on the ground in Dublin Fingal. Her own councillor in Dublin Fingal opposed 1,200 new homes in Donabate, 253 social and 253 affordable homes in Ballamastone and Donabate, and that's replicated right across the country. Now, I'm used to that. I'm used to that by Sinn Féin, the party of objectors. What I would say to Labour, and I do, and I do, have, I do have a lot of regard for our, La- for our Labour Party colleagues, and I have found them constructive in the main in the past. But you should not go to... Sean, welcome, you're here. Um, <laughs> Labour, Labour, Labour should not go down that road. And Deputy Batchich, I'll say this to you. You know, the, the claim that you will deliver a million new homes you know, over 10 years, and then you say, well, actually, no, they're retrofitted homes or they're refurbished homes. I think people will see through that, but you should not go down, you should not go down the road that your colleagues here in Sinn Féin have. Because what Sinn Féin will do, time and time again, ably supported by the Social Democrats, will oppose every single measure that this government takes. Every single measure. Now, let me give an example to, to, to the serial objector and interrupter Owen O'Brien here this morning. 
is every measure for first-time buyers. The Help to Buy grant, €30,000. 37,000 households, they oppose it. And Hildegard Nocton added to Dara O'Brien's criticism of the Labour Party. The party of James Connolly, Brendan Corish and Michael O'Leary understood the importance and the necessity of building homes for workers, families of all incomes, something the Labour Party of 2023 appears to have forgotten. Last Cancorla, there was a time when the Labour Party would be ashamed to pull a stunt like this. Members of uh, the Labour Party didn't like what they were hearing there or here. Taking their cue. We remind you of your campaign, Frankfurt's way or Labour's way. We remind you of every little hurts, the promises on student fees, protect the vulnerable, all the promises you broke when you got into government. But as the Labour Party said on record, isn't that what you do? Isn't that what you do at election time? But it's not what you do at election time. And it's not actually what other parties do. And when you got into government, what did you do? You broke all your promises. You broke all your promises. Water charges. HAP invited into vulture funds. Isn't that what you did? That's your record. You can argue whether they were right or wrong, needed or not, but you brought them in. And what did it do? And where did you get? You were warned about an impending crisis of a housing shortage supply. You were warned. You disparaged the people who warned you. You disparaged. And where did it end up with? 75 social houses. You turned off the tap for housing and you broke the pipe. It's what you did at the time. Fianna Falls, James Brown. They say it isn't over till the shouting's over. So Vanya says she's going to build a million houses. I wouldn't trust Labour to build a house. And if they... If they, did co- if they did couple something together, the fox would clean it in one night. Um, because this very same lady back in 2006, back in 2006, she complained about the houses around the Ring of Kerry and that there were a dot and a blot in the landscape. But I'll say to you here, every one of you, Labour included, I'm proud of the lights and the windows around the Ring of Kerry when I stand at the top of Kumikishta or, or, or Mountain Stage or whether I'm in the top of Anabla or, or Nakhtagashal. I'm proud to see the people trying to live in those hills and glens and valleys and I'll take no dictation from here or anywhere. And at the same time, I, I have no favour here be, I, between either side of me. Because here's the crowd that are listening to the Greens telling you what to do and telling you what not to do. And at the same time, you want to stop us cutting turf. And at the same time, you want to import everything in here, in Thailand. We are an oil nation. And it's going to be more carbon footprint if we have to import beef from Brazil and coal from, from somewhere else and, and gas from Russia. And at the same time, you want to paralyze us here in this country. Stand up for the people that are elected and give over the gambling. And that colourful contribution from Danny Healy Ray. We're having this debate today because the Labour Party decided that it needed to do something to get attention. It has adopted a strategy of trying to match others for angry rhetoric and empty promises. Just like other left parties, it remains so terrified of Sinn Féin's troll army that it is increasingly incapable of presenting a distinct position from that party on any matter. There is little purpose, Akeon Korla, served in taking apart the reality of Labour's tactics and demanding a confidence vote. 
All I will say is that when I hear the loud words of attack on us in relation to housing, that I can't help quoting aspects uh, and, and, the, and the last policy on renters outlined in the rental market in a Labour manifesto. And Labour committed then, quote, we will also seek to create the regulated stable rental market that institutional investors, such as pension funds, require to provide significant rental units. You supported pension funds' engagement in the rental market, subsequently demonised them and so forth. And could I say through the chair, could I say through the chair, that the one million housing pledge last week lacked any credibility and very quickly was qualified by the leader of the Labour Party. Very quickly, oh, it's 50-50. 50 new build and 50 uh, refurbishment. There was a a lot of uh, strong criticism being uh, thrown uh, both sides at each other and indeed a lot of interruptions uh, from both sides of the House. We finish there with uh, the Thonishta Micheál Martin indeed. That brings us uh, to the end of our time today. Before we go, thanks as always to Maggie McGuire who recently Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme. Tomorrow morning at 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.